that's the beauty of the digital and social space from a marketer perspective is that you do have direct access to your consumer. You do have direct access to information and how they're engaging with it. You can check a whole bunch of different metrics that are important at different times of a campaign. Welcome to Future View and the very last episode of 2022, although it's one which I think is relevant in any time frame, because I'm talking to one of the most tenured, perceptive and thoughtful research and marketing execs in the film industry, John Hegeman. From pioneering work on the likes of Dancers with Wolves, through a host of big names in the film industry, and now onto Wayward Entertainment, John draws on his career to talk about the importance of resilience, the hunger to keep on learning, the use of AI to accelerate insight, and the use of different metrics for digital marketing. I think it's a fascinating conversation, and one in which I learned so much. I also want to briefly tell you about Vault AI. Now, Vault are a really innovative company delivering AI-powered consumer insights. I can hear you asking, what on earth are AI-powered consumer insights? Well, Vault's focus is informing content decisions for the likes of leading streamers, TV networks, and film studios. In order to do that, they've gathered consumption data sets and content DNA from over 60,000 titles globally. These are then processed through a powerful machine learning engine. In turn, that drives sophisticated predictions of how a title will perform, whether in the US or internationally, who the audience will be, and what marketing will drive them to watch. So it supplements the type of data that's traditionally been used, surveys or focus groups, inputting actual behavioral data to inform key decisions across production, development, and marketing. You can find out more about them at info.vault-ai.com. And now onto the interview. So John, firstly, thanks so much for joining today. Really, really delighted and honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. I uh, appreciate being invited on. Uh, not at all. Now, just to get going, you probably know what's coming, but I wanted to start with a little bit of an icebreaker that I've been asking pretty much all our guests so far. So it's one of your secrets. It doesn't have to be a deepest, darkest secret. It could be if you want to be, or it could just be something that most people wouldn't know about you that you wouldn't find just through a Google search or a LinkedIn or something like that. The thing that you probably couldn't find out about me, but it's a big part of my life, is I trail run. I run in the uh, Santa Monica Mountains in, in L.A. I live right at the base of them, and I find it to be unbelievably enjoyable, and I've been doing it for 30-plus years. So I don't think anyone knows that. Maybe nobody cares either, but it's a it's a big part of uh, what I like doing for, for enjoyment and uh, probably half the time for therapy as well. Yeah, I don't know. I know it sounds fantastic. I wouldn't say I've necessarily run them, but I've hiked quite a few of those trails. I'm probably not as fit as you. I had to sort of stumble up them. As you get older, you end up, whether you're going uphill or downhill, you have one speed. It's sort of slow. <laughs> and then do you just do it recreationally or do you um, enter kind of competitions and that type of thing? I, I do local competitions and thank God uh, they break down uh, where you stand by your age group. So, you know, as you get older and older, there's less and less people in your age group. So, you know, um, it, it's easier to finish up top when there's only you and a handful of other people. I'm sure you're just being too modest, actually, because someone made a similar point to me. But the other, they said, actually, when they were doing, like, you know, marathons and half marathons, and they said, when you reach his age, the trouble is everyone's really good. That is <laughs> that the problem. I, I literally thought when I would get up into the next age group and be like, you know, they go by a 10-year period and be the youngest in that group. I'm like, oh, I got them. I'm the kid in this age group. Only to find out there may be a third less people, but they're all really, really good because only the the fittest, as, as you get older, want to keep doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, I could probably you know, get trail running tips from you uh, for a long period of time, but we should probably move on onto your career and the way in which you've influenced and actually been the foundation of a lot of marketing and research and insights work. I mean, it's been a whole range of amazing positions. So reading off the list slightly, but, you know, likes of MGM that will be known for many things, but clearly you know, James Bond, Artisan Entertainment, Lionsgate, the list goes on and on and on. But how did you get into the industry? How did you make, make your uh, start to make your path in the entertainment world? I always wanted to be in the movie business. I either wanted to be a professional athlete or be in the movie business. And I wasn't good enough to be in a professional athlete. I used to make my own little movies growing up. When I graduated from college, I sent out about 40 or 50 resumes, not really knowing anything about the business of, of movies. and you know, got almost all rejections, a handful of informational interviews. And throughout those informational interviews, that's where I really learned more about the business. Like, you know, what's the difference between marketing and distribution and, you know, what international and all these different departments. And so after four or five of those uh, interviews, I ended up um, getting a job at this small company called United Film Distribution Company. They did all horror movies. They were the home to George Romero. And also the the little studio for, at the time, was UA Theater Circuit. So that was in the, uh, you know, mid to late 80s. And that was my first break. It was just knocking on doors and getting a lot of rejections and just keep going at it. And, you know, any interview I did get, I'd try to learn something from it and apply it to you know, wherever I went next. And so would that be part of your advice, you know, for say younger people looking to get in the entertainment industry now? Like those are some of the eternal truths. Just keep going and learn something from every rejection. Keep going. Know that you don't know everything and know that every conversation you have, you're going to learn something from it. So walk into the conversation knowing that even if I don't get the job, I'm going to learn something from it. I'm going to make myself be a better candidate. I'm going to know more, understand more, and I'm going to apply it as I move forward. And I think that's that's the, you know, the biggest thing is you better be ready for rejection. If you want to be in the entertainment field or any competitive field, unless you're the top, top of the top, you know, you have to be ready for rejection and you have to have thick skin and you have to have faith in your abilities and you have to be probably realistic about your abilities, you know, and, and but if you want it, you got to go for it. Yeah, that's it's an interesting point around that balance between being thick skinned, but not so thick skinned that you don't take on board feedback and you're not kind of self reflective. Yeah. And I mean, thick skin, meaning you can take it. You can take the criticism. When I say thick skin, that's what I mean. Not mean you don't. It doesn't bother you. It, I mean, I mean, it shouldn't bother you if someone's giving you uh, positive criticism to or or helpful advice. You should always be open to it. That should be the biggest thing. I mean, thick skin that, you know, you got to be able to take it. You got to be able to tell you, oh, you're not ready for this yet, or you have to understand this, or, you know, maybe you got to do this better, you know, and that's it. Every day you got to be ready to probably figure out how to do things better, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you'd mentioned to me before when we were bouncing back and forth um, via email that, you know, you've been at the forefront of research and data analytics around the film sector, really kind of almost right at the beginning. I mean, back at MarketCast, which was one of the companies that I worked at, for instance, with the release of Dances with Wolves, 
I thought an interesting starting point could be to run through something of an evolution in terms of data and research and how that's been used to inform movie releases. So what type of work were you doing, say, with Dances with Wolves? And then what's remained consistent? And then what's changed if we now look at, you know, say, the end of 2022? Sure. So I was at Orion. Research had a, not a dirty name, but it was sort of like, oh, don't tell us how to make a movie. Don't tell us how to market a movie. We know what to do. We're not going to use research to dictate it. I always thought that's, that's crazy, right? So I got the opportunity to oversee research. And I was sort of like with, with NRG, there was nothing that sort of allowed you to take their information and sort of predict you know, an outcome of something like they're doing tracking studies, but you couldn't, you know, put together a formula and, and say, okay, I'm at here. So I'm going to open up to here. Uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 it just was weird. So uh, I met Dr. Joe uh, and he was just starting out. Dr. Joseph Helfgott was the founder, one of the founders of MarketCast. He was up in Boston. He used to do radio shows up there. And he hooked up with Stony Brook University and their big data department there. And, and, and they offered research like it's never been done before and bigger sample sizes and using regression and using real data science to look at the information in sort of a new and deeper way. But at the time, we had Dances with Wolves, and people used to make fun of the movie. They used to call it the three-hour Western with subtitles. Mm -hmm. They used to call it Kevin's Gate. Dances with Wolves, it's, it, it worked because it was a great movie, and it worked to a very wide spectrum of people. But it worked for different reasons for different people. And that was the first time sort of we, from a marketing perspective, and at least for me, that we really got into it. It was like, oh. Older females want this movie to be more of a romantic drama. Older guys want it to be like a historically accurate war. Um, men in general like the action of it. Uh, oh, this story of this character going against, you know, the, 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 the man. We very quickly actually came up with a very strong campaign. Everyone at, Mark, at, at, at Orion at the time was very good. We had some really great people in the creative and media department and everything. So there was a plan on how we're going to sell and position the movie to all these different audiences. But at the end of the day, by the time we open, it's just going to be this great event. Um, but we got there by identifying core audiences and, I, and, and, and connecting that with stories that they wanted to hear most out of it. That was the, the a rambling answer on Dances with Wolves, but it was the first time in the industry where people were really looking at, I think, focus groups and positioning studies and, and targeted segmentation of audiences. Mm. Yeah, so look, John, I mean, I, I don't think it was particularly rambling, and I, and I think it, it's interesting and raises some other questions as well of someone who's been in your position as to how you take a sort of a broad canvas literally <laughs> i think good as well as you know metaphorically in the case of something like dance with wolves and you've got all these different storylines and angles and how do you then work with creative execs to bring that to life you know research over the last 25 years uh and data analytics are becoming more and more acceptable so it was much harder back then um i think in today any smart person wants to be open to information they just maybe from a creative perspective, don't want it to dictate what they're doing. Um, so it has to be presented in a way, first, here's the big picture of what we're doing as a marketing campaign. And you look at all the different departments that go into that. And when you deal with the creative part of it, I think it's about 
providing what you're trying to accomplish off the top of the bat and, and being in sync, you know, Oh, we're trying to hit this audience with this piece of material. And if you're well in agreement of what you're trying to accomplish and who you're trying to make it for, you know, I think then it just becomes people buy into the program from a, if you are creative and you're like, Oh wow, that information really helped me make that last piece of material, that trailer or that poster or that TV spot it really came out pretty good. That that was helpful information. And it wasn't just telling me what to do. It was sort of opening my eyes to what, what could be done and what I could use as a reference. And, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's important if you're bringing any type of this data into people that aren't used to it, getting them on board on what you're trying to accomplish from a big picture, and then just walking through with them the pr- practical application of the findings and how it can make their job easier. So, so what have been the big changes that you've seen around the marketing and research space? Two things. One is, I, I, it's two things, and they're sort of combined, but they're different. One is, one is uh, media buying and data analytics and being able to look at the performance of your buys so that becomes almost like your key strategic insight to how you're doing in real time. So you can see on all Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, how your campaign is going, how what audiences are engaging with them to what level, depending on the metrics you're looking at. You really gain this insane level of insight to be efficient and engaging. And then on the other part, it's machine learning and AI which in the last four or five years has done something that that is revolutionary, which is sort of giving you like predictive insights on how to make things better. And by doing so, where, where you would be. And I think that's probably been the biggest thing for, throughout the process of, of at least the ability and, and the ability to, to connect. You know, one of the big things in, in the trouble with some of the traditional research is you can't connect to, oh, this is my research screening. So that means this is where I can be by the time I'm opening. You know, like every step in traditional research is sort of its own silo, not that connective tissue between the different steps. And I think with machine learning and AI, there sort of is, you know, you could start with the concept of a movie and you could take it through the script of a movie to the finished movie, to the material, to you know, this sort of social engagement, I'm going through like the steps of a campaign, right? All of that can be done with machine learning as sort of like an ongoing partner to the Mm. process, which I think is, you know, being that connective tissue. Um, So I thought that's been probably the most revolutionary thing over the last four or five yeah, it, w- it would be good to dive into that in a little bit more detail, John, in terms of how the kind of connective tissue works. But going back to the media buying piece for a moment. So I totally get that there's lots and lots of feedback and it's pretty much instantaneous. But how is it to actually, how easy is it to actually act on it? I guess on a couple of levels, because some of the things I hear from doing some of these interviews and from clients is that A, you don't necessarily have that many materials lined up just to you know put back into the machine if something isn't necessarily kind of working particularly in the movie and tv business where materials made need to have been approved by the talent and so on and so on but then there's also a second difficulty that's i've heard as well around 
reconciling the different metrics and maybe this is getting too technical for me i don't know for you but between youtube facebook instagram everybody's giving you their own scorecard so how do you decide what to do across the different platforms i'm glad you brought that up because i could talk about this all day i'm actually working on a handful of movies right now um where where your social and digital buy becomes so important so first is whoever doesn't have their assets lined up beforehand shame on them okay uh, what what i would always do anywhere i was and any marketer does this they they especially in today's world they build up almost like an asset war chest and they sit there and they put it out over a calendar you know of how they're going to roll it out and you know when you're going to go out with a broad message when you're going to go out with a segmented message and you're going to look at how it performs and you're going to convert your buy to what works best or turn off what doesn't work. And you're going to do that throughout the campaign and you're going to find out what your hero pieces are and you're going to lean into them. So, you know, you can make you can do this on a, a multi time a day uh, process. But, but you know, I guess I'm working on a small movie right now. We probably have 60 different pieces of, of digital assets going from, you know static posts to you know different gifs to clips to trailers to tv spots to posters you know and you put this all out there and at least for me i would line all those up with who i think the audience they're being made for and you put them out on a programming calendar and and grid and you put money against it and you see how they perform so 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 that's the first thing of like how can you not make changes mm-hmm. you should be able to make i mean it's it's that's the beauty of the digital and social space from a marketer perspective is that you do have direct access to your consumer. You do have direct access to information and how they're engaging with it. You can check a whole bunch of different metrics that are important at different times of a campaign. Um, you know, a view rate's really important early on. Post-share ratio during the midst of the campaign, you want to be as high as it can be. You know, click-through ratio as you're getting through some type of transactional thing becomes the metric of choice. So, you know, you have you have seven or eight different metrics that goes into the different buys on the different platforms. They're important. And <clears throat> the other thing is not every every platform has its own ecosystem and its strength. So, you know, Facebook and Instagram is better for older audiences over 35 and putting things in their thread that aren't too long, that work specifically for them. They like to engage with it. And if you're on Twitter, you sort of want to be in the zeitgeist of things a little bit more. You know, YouTube is a great platform for actually having people uh, ingest and engage with content. That's the one place where... It, you're not interfering with their everyday social schedule like you are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. That's where people commute, communicate with each other. YouTube's a great platform because actually you go there to be entertained and to, you know, watch stuff. So longer pieces of content work better on YouTube. Um, you know, so there's all these types of things you got to know about the different platforms. There's all types of things that you got to know about how audiences consume on these different platforms. And then you got to understand which metrics are most important and work best on all these different platforms. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to be looking for the same thing from metrics perspective on YouTube that I would be at Twitter because there are different platforms for different purposes for their audience base. But you certainly each one has their own norms 
and you know when you get something like a view rate over 35% on YouTube, it means something. You know, but if you really want to see the quality of your content, you have to look at its view to completion, you know, and not four seconds or 15 mm. seconds. How many people are how many people are watching that from 50% on? You know, so you start looking at the quality of the audiences that you're engaging with and how much are they, you know, and that's where you have to know, well, you know, you're getting charged impressions don't really mean things here. View rates really mean things here. Click through ratios and programmatic are important. So you have to understand that you have to be looking at it. Like you look at a stock market or stock, you know, you have to look at it every day and how things are performing by content, by audience, by platform. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I guess it's also a, an answer to the question that ultimately they each have their own distinct qualities. They have their own distinct target groups. They probably play different roles at different stages of a campaign. Is it awareness building or is it kind of call to action or that type of thing? So there is no one answer, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, because it, it shows why digital platforms have been so effective. John, I will go back to the AI piece in a moment, but is anybody managing to connect, or maybe AI is doing this, the upper funnel and then mid funnel metrics that we've been talking about to actual sell through, which is probably not quite the correct term for movies and TV, but you but you know what I mean. Uh, I I think you're right on target. So so no, you you there is it's performance marketing, you know, and, and now that so much is going on and on demand and is transactional in all of our lives, right? We see. We see an ad and we buy off of that ad. Well, it's whether it's buying a ticket for a movie to go see it in a theater or it's buying it, you know, to be on all these different digital platforms. The end of the game is understanding your funnel and, and making it be as, you know, short as it can be before you have to, you know, convert. So, you know, that's the whole thing is all these different audiences. Is it like seven pieces of assets that I'm going to have to feed them before they're ready to convert? And, you know, what's that click through ratio? And what's the cost per click? And but if you're selling on like EST and VOD, that's performance marketing. So 100 percent from my reading and listening to podcasts and that type of thing, there still seems to be a fair amount of industry frustration, though, around getting the final data in many cases. And I know that's been the case to some extent with traditional theatrical exhibition, not in terms of getting aggregate numbers, but you know, fr frustrations about following the funnel all the way through in terms of understanding exactly who attended and potentially kind of why they attended. Is, is digital making that better or is it making it worse with walled gardens and all that type of thing? Well, I mean, you're sending people to a checkout of an existing store, right? So that takes you pretty far. That's like taking them up mm. to the, the ticket booth, right? Like yeah, yeah. They, when you turn around, they could run away back to the parking lot. But, you know, you, you are driving them to convert directly to the 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 outlet. So you, and it's to their checkout. It's not like to their front. Gotcha. Page so, you know, if you know who you're driving there and you know who's clicking through to get there, you know, um, you then just the only assumption is what's the percentage of people you drive to the checkout that are actually purchasing, you know, so you may want to use 15%, 30%, whatever that number is, that's the only, like, variance, the rest of it, you're, you know, exactly. 
Gotcha, gotcha. But so yeah, so it's much, much tighter than the old school kind of way, which it would have been, okay, I've got intent to purchase or view. And now I've got a massive gap. You're going, I've actually I've got you all the way to the checkout, and now I can make a reasonable assumption as to however yeah. many kind of convert through that. Yeah, like I'm a traditional broadcast, which was the driving force and still is the driving force to broad wide release movies. It's like the only way you can really understand you know, how impactful that is, is by asking people as they come out of the theater, what made you come? And if they say broadcast, I guess you give it a certain percentage, but it's, you know, there's nothing more efficient than, you know, uh, social and digital media and the ability to, you know, understand who your audience is and track them through the purchase process. And so, John, dipping back into the AI and machine learning piece of it, and I'm not going to be really cruel and ask you to distinguish between AI and machine learning, or you can do if you want to, but I know there are all sorts, many different definitions. So you said that's accelerating the process and it's enabling the connective tissue between the different pieces. So how does that work in more practical terms without giving away anything confidential about companies you might be involved with? So you know, all these different phases of research and the development of how research is used along the way. I'm I'm an outsider. So I'm always trying to understand the real practical applications of something. So I do work with Vault AI and David Stiff. And he came in four or five years ago when he was just starting. And I'm always into giving new companies a chance, A, because I'm usually not working with the same dollar amount, right? So I'm like, okay, I'll I'll help them get their client base, and by that I'm gonna you mm. know, I'll get a good price. Uh, and I would ask those questions that you just asked me, and and so I use I would use it when I was at Orion, and and now even at Wayward. Uh, before um, if I'm looking at a library, when I was at Orion, I would be looking at the MGM library because I went over there like. See if you want to remake any of this stuff. So I said, hey, David, can we take 20 scripts and run them through the system? And can you tell me which ones have a chance of being remade and, you know, which ones have an audience to them? And what do you think? And, you know, that was like five or six years ago. And now it's, you know, giving a concept and getting back the information on who this concept would work best for, how big that audience is. Um, what each one of these different audiences like most about that concept. Um, if it's a movie, let's just talk about movies, what its potential box office could be, both domestically and internationally, which international markets may be the strength of it, which ones are the failures of it. Can it work on a streamer? How do the streamers like it? Which streamer likes it the best? And what are the elements of that concept that that streamer likes the best? I, I think I see. And, and, and none of this is necessarily based up around applying AI or machine learning to survey-based responses or focus groups. So it's not taking the older methodologies of asking people questions, which, by the way, I still think has quite a lot of merit to them, but but it, it's building connective tissue between them. So, so if I understanding it correctly, say going back to that example whereby you've got a library, you've got 20 scripts. In the old days, you would have said, okay, I've now got to do some massive great research project of asking whatever it is, 500 people about each of these 20 scripts or whatever the number happens to be. Whereas 
what a machine learning approach is probably doing is looking at what's in those scripts, looking at previously successful outcomes, but being able to do it on at a speed at which the human brain, a level of complexity and variability that the human brain wouldn't be able to do. If I churn it all together, I think these are the five that would have the most potential. But if you change this component, you foreshadow this and you backshadow this, this changes the likely outcome. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's sort of creating your own world around that project that you can keep asking it anything you want and keep working off of it without starting anew, starting anew, starting anew. So it's, it's sort of like creating a world based on everything that exists you know, everything in that database. So the more information, you know, that is thrown in that database, you know, what AI does is it becomes smarter and smarter and smarter. The biggest thing is the the efficiency and the quickness, you know, to your point, you'd have to do, if I wanted to do 20 studies, it's that's, you're talking about an insane amount of money. You're talking about someone saying, okay, I'll get back to you in six months. You know, it's one after waiting for them instead of something that's a much quicker process that is really giving you similar information and at times a much greater depth of information. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I am going to talk with David uh, next year, I think. So I'll grill him on it as well. So I'm quite intrigued to know how you calibrate against the outcomes, how you put new information into the system. But I'll drill David on that. Um, and then, John, in the meantime, I also want just to check in on Wayward and um, hear what you're doing with Wayward. I mean, it sounds fun and intriguing and like you've got some great projects on the go. We have a, a couple projects we're going with. We market a bunch of genre movies domestically, uh, all in that day and date space. Um, so that's why I'm sort of uh, fixated on the strength of social and digital because that sort of is where that ecosystem lives, uh, and it's just a fascinating space. And then we're also producing a handful of movies. Uh, we are setting up a movie with uh, the the uh, amazing Nick Frost uh, called uh, Svalta, which we announced uh, midway through this year. And it looks like we're going to get that going at the top of uh, next year. So that's exciting. So making a couple movies, working on the release of a couple movies, and um, you know, just getting out there and and, and uh, enjoying the space and sort of as an indie player, uh, there's so many opportunities right now with so much disruption going on. Yeah. So, what what sort of changes have you? observed over that have really kind of hit you over the last six to 12 months and who do you think has acted in a kind of smart way with 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 alacrity listen all the major studios are so smart they know what they're doing they're not major studios for that space so i think they're all sort of balancing the concept of having their own subscription platform with within the ecosystem of an overall entertainment studio so you know, I think they're all going about it a little differently, but all pretty interesting. I mean, my big thing is is watching what's going to go on with the DC universe with um, James Gunn uh, and Peter Safran coming on board to run that because I think they're both really smart in the space. And I think James is probably one of the most brilliant minds in the space. And it's such a big, big sort of universe to to like refocus and get going. So that to me is probably one of the most interesting things. And, and on a personal basis, um, 
It's the power of AVOD. It's the power of ESTVOD. It's the power of certain windows that still allow an independent distributor or producer an opportunity to succeed and to compete uh, with some of these much bigger companies. So it's always nice. And and hopefully theatrical will come back. That's going to be interesting to see as well. But but it's really, you know, looking for these pockets within the distribution cycle where you actually can really succeed in that of upside as an indie is, I think, what's fascinating right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd agree on both levels. Yeah. As you said, it'd be really interesting to see what James Gunn does within the DC universe, given that it's not been all more serious relatively, but that has had a more serious tone, I suppose, to Marvel. And I know he's done many other things, but I was associating with, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy that was such a kind of... I think gave audiences sticker shock in a really good way. It was you know, so out there, but so landed so well. Um, you also raised a question I did want to get into. I mean, do you think theaters are going to come back? I mean, box office is what, 30% down this year. It may be influenced, I guess, by Avatar, even though a lot of the grosses for that will probably fall into next year. Well, where do you think the future lies for theatrical? It's a good question because right now it's survival of the biggest, right? You, it, it's a major... Studios have major event movies and they work. Um, the only good news, aside from that, is that horror movies are working as well theatrically. You know, they're working at a really strong level. And it's because there's not this oversaturation of them because of COVID and everything. All those movies have been going straight to streamers or in day and date. So when you see a horror movie out in the theaters, like Smile, you know, that does a lot of business. And uh, even uh, the one that came out last weekend uh, by Universal, the Christmas themed horror movie, which I can't think of the title right now, um, they work. So that means that people will come back. Um, The adult cinema has not come back yet. You know, that sort of drama or or controlled comedy for, uh, you know, 35 to 54 year old, you know, the adult audience before COVID was the ones that were going to theaters still on a regular basis. You know, so they haven't come back to the levels they they will. I, I think it has to be movies that are special enough that they need to be seen in theaters. Um, and there's just patience to sort of get either a younger audience back in or the older. But right now it's sort of like families and big events and, you know, um, you just want to see diversity in, in what people have as far as options to go, because if all there ever is, is big event movies, then that's all they're ever going to go for. But um, I don't know. It's a good question. And I think the next year is going to be interesting to see you know, how some of those other genres besides horror and big event films are making their way back. Yeah, it's an interesting point about horror, isn't it? Because I suppose it does have you, you get a, a visceral benefit from watching horror with other people and on a big screen in a darkened room. And you can clearly see why it works. I guess we could talk about this subject for a long time. We'll probably run out of time on it, but, and I'm conscious that we're coming up on the hour where anyway, from when we first started chatting and I, I should let you get on with your day. You probably need to check the marketing data that's coming in on your movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you yeah, haven't done right. so, if, if you haven't done so already. So if it's all right, I'll just do a, a quick far round, which means that I read out a statement and then you, you give a quick answer if that's okay. Sure. So what do you know now that you wish you'd known 20 years ago? that patience is a virtue are you trying to tell me john that you were impatient 20 years ago i can't believe it (laughs) yes i i can admit it now 
No problem at all. Okay, if you could be the CEO of any company, which one would you uh, be the CEO of and, and why? Maybe even Madison Square Garden, because there's more than just baseball being played on it, but some big, huge sports and entertainment driven venue that is, uh, you know, rotates amazing forms of entertainment in it, I think would be great. Which of your personal qualities would you like to pass on to your kids? And slightly cheeky question, any they should avoid? Thirst of knowledge and hard work, I would like to pass on to them. And uh, lack of patience when I was their age, I would not, I would like to see them not have, or I would like to see them be patient through their career process. And does that mean not making decisions too quickly, like letting things play out? How, how does that work in a practical no, perspective? No, I don't mean that because I think you should always let decisions play out. You should always have uh before any decisions made you should be doing your homework you should listen to every single perspective there is i mean on a outcome that you may want in in your career even oh i want to be this well you can be that but you sometimes have to put in a little bit more legwork or years at certain levels before you're really ready for that i i, I think that's what you know and i see that i would say that to the, any young person i think they they work you know, in one position for half a year and they're ready for the next one and ready for the next and ready for the next. And sometimes you want to get not just have an understanding of the job that you're supposed to be doing, but an expertise in the job that you do before you move on. Gotcha. And final question, what's your favorite or most impactful book or recent book? Actually, it doesn't even have to be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be a movie, whatever. The World According to Garp by John Irving. Interesting. And why? I read that book, whatever that is now, wow, maybe it's 40 years ago. I'm starting to date myself, and I was young when I read it. And it's a crazy book. And I remember I used to read Kurt Vonnegut all the time when I was young, and I never really even knew what I was reading. But I sort of just sort of from a visceral perspective just thought everything was sort of crazy and and you know over my head but it was it was it was fun reading and i think john irving's world according to garp i remember i read that i'm like holy cow so this is like this is what the adult world is and uh in a really weird satirical way so that book always stuck with me because i probably shouldn't have read it for another six or seven years john thank you so much really really appreciate the time it's been uh wonderfully insightful Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much to John for being such a gracious and insightful guest. And thanks again to Vault AI for sponsoring. You can check out their approach to using AI machine learning at info.vault-ai.com. That also brings the first season of the Future View podcast to an end, but we'll be back early in the new year with the second season, which I'm delighted to announce will be in conjunction with insightsplatforms.com. They're an amazing research resource. We'll also be hosting back episodes as well as blog posts containing highlights and summaries from episodes. We'll be starting off the new season with a bang, including some great interviewees from major brands and agencies. Thank you so much for all your support and see you next year.